Hello and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan and I'm really having quite a lot of fun putting this uh, podcast together and I really hope you're having some fun listening to uh, the things I've been exploring. If you're tuning in for the first time, thank you for listening in. I hope you're not lost on the internet uh, like I tend to get, but even if you are, I'm really glad you landed on this podcast. And if you've joined me before and have decided to listen in again, thank you. It's so great to know that there are those out there who seem to be resonating with the stuff I've been exploring. I find it quite brilliant that so far, and this is just really cool, uh, I've got listeners from Germany, Rwanda, Sweden, New Zealand, America, the United Kingdom, Australia, and South Africa, and just knowing you're all out there is pretty amazing. I, I, it's kind of cool just to connect with people, even strangers, through this uh, fascinating medium. Uh, you're all so welcome, as always, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts on are on the stuff I've been exploring and sharing. I have a Facebook group for that, which you can check out. It's facebook.com forward slash unorthodoxy podcast. I know just from the few conversations that I've had with some of you that not everything I'm saying is completely missing the mark, which is nice. And I hope that as I keep on going, that it'll continue to resonate with uh, with where you are. So here we are at the seventh episode of the podcast, and I want to talk about religious fundamentalism for some reason that I'm not entirely sure of. The word fundamentalism has the word fun in it, and that is very misleading, as I'm sure you've just realized, because most fundamentalists seem to suffer from something akin to a serious uh, failure of sense of humor. So I, I sometimes joke that John Calvin is particularly adept at taking the fun out of fundamentalism, but that's another story. story. And I, I'm pro I'll probably mention uh, why I think that at some point in the future. The word fundamentalism also has the word mental in it. If British slang is our source of inspiration, which I think it should be from time to time, then this word mental is much closer to the mark because it, it refers to a kind of insanity that, that knows way too much or knows, in inverted commas, way too much and therefore it cannot understand anything. By the way, what I've just done is just like ridiculous etymology. I'm not even refer referring to the origin of the word. I'm just making up stuff on the basis of the fact that the words fun and mental are part of the the, the sound of fundamentalism. And so, yeah, it's nonsense, but, but it's kind of fun to, to go through. I find the the issue of religious fundamentalism fascinating because it raises all kinds of questions about the world that we're confronted with these days. It it interrogates the relationship between the categories of faith and belief, or put differently, between faith and knowledge. And, and that's what I want to focus on here. So yeah, I'm I'm creating a, it's perhaps a kind of artificial split between faith and belief, or faith and knowledge. I'm equating belief and knowledge here, uh, just because I think it, it can be helpful for the discussion. And hopefully as I go on, you'll understand what I mean by by faith and knowledge. It may at first seem like the most sensible thing you could do to argue that religious fundamentalism is the exact opposite of secular liberalism or the kind of sec secular cynical mindset. In other words, it might seem like the best thing to do to equate fundamentalism with faith on the one side and then secularism with knowledge on the other side. But when we do this, I think we actually misunderstand what's going on with fundamentalism and and why it exists and how it operates. Of course, in fairly obvious ways, fundamentalism and secularism are completely different, 
But the reality is that they, they share a profound connection. Uh, it's fairly safe to say that difference is actually rooted in connection. For instance, a chair is clearly different from a table, but we can say this because they're both things. And we can say that a dog is different from a cat because they are both pets. I think it's a nominalist error to presume that all we have is difference and becoming, but in reality we function according to a perception of the connection between things. This is how our conceptual machinery works, how our minds work according to connection first and then difference and becoming second. The better we understand the connection between things, then the better we will actually be able to understand their differences. So let's look at what connects religious fundamentalism with the secular liberal mindset. It's the the wonderful philosopher Slavoj Žižek who points out that a fundamentalist does not have faith because he knows directly. Žižek goes on to say that both liberal skeptical cynicism and fundamentalism share a basic underlying quality. They both have lost their faith. For both of them, Žižek says, religious statements are quasi-empirical statements of direct knowledge. Fundamentalists accept them as such. They just accept them while skeptical cynics mock them. He says this in, in his, his book, In Defense of Lost Causes. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's on page 31. So, to restate what Zizek is getting at, you have fundamentalism in the one corner and a cynical skepticism in the other corner, but both of them are making claims to know rather than to trust or have faith. What they know is, of course, very limited to a particular set of self-inflicted coordinates that aren't exactly the same, but it is knowledge that matters to most of them, not faith. So they're, they're, both, they're not concerned with the transcendent, even if fundamentalism seems to make the claim that it is. And I know that's a really tricky thing to do because fundamentalists are the ones who are very vocal about the fact that they believe in God. But I, I want to, God, for instance, all the moral law, etc. But they seem to be overlooking the fact that that is a facade. That's the, it's terminology rather than some sort of authentic faith experience. So fundamentalism may pay lip service to the transcendent, but it denies its mystery. And I think this is where, where the crux is. So it denies its mystery, and it, and it does this so totally that it really eradicates any possibility of trusting in the transcendent. To see this, think about the way that religious fundamentalists will usually take their own holy texts as literally as they possibly can. And they'll do this without reference to context. So uh, because complex, context is complex. I need to say that right. So context is complex and and that's just that's just too much work. So they'll take things literally and out of context. And they will to, this is just to refer to a concrete case. They'll talk of the creation story in Genesis for instance like as if it's it's scientific and empirical and it's an a, a literal account of what happened. While someone like the skeptical cynic uh, Richard Dawkins will mock this acceptance of the Genesis account as if it is a literal truth that opposes an alternate literal truth like the Big Bang Theory or evolutionary theory. So there's this ridiculous and false split between faith and science, which is generated because of a particular knowledge claim. Instead of seeing the one as claiming knowledge versus the other one which claims faith, and they're in different territory. Again, um, Karen Armstrong's uh, got this idea of, of mythos and logos as, as sort of oppositional and 
science deals in logos, which is is reason and rationality, whereas mythos is is the realm of religious faith. Uh, so check it out uh, in her book, The Battle for God. Really, really interesting book. So both of these uh, groups of people, the fundamentalist, uh, religious fundamentalist, and the scientific skeptic, they have the same. They have the same uh, hermeneutic. Both lack a basic kind of imagination, and if, I think uh, the, a lack of imagination is a fairly good sign of of what a, a fundamentalist is. Uh, and both refuse to examine the paradigm that directs what they understand. Both render the world utterly imminent, utterly concrete, utterly material, and as a consequence, utterly devoid of secrets or unknowables. Of course, fundamentalists tend to see themselves as opposing the so-called scary, creeping influence of secularity. Maybe they see themselves as a bastion of religious hope. Uh, it seems like they do. Fundamentalists really do think that they're fighting for religious truth in the face of materialisms of various kinds. But I see the reality as being quite a lot more ironic than most fundamentalists perceive it to be. Their beliefs are actually a weapon against faith, authentic faith. By clinging so ferociously to a particular kind of knowledge, uh, a literal uh, knowledge, rather than a particular kind of faith, fundamentalists are better understood as a symptom of secularity. Fundamentalism is, in reality, opposed to authentic belief. You can even say that fundamentalism threatens authentic belief. The fundamentalist cannot have faith in the imperceptible because that sort of faith is, is way too uncertain, too risky, too doubtful. So a fundamentalist is not looking for something as shaky and as uncertain as this kind of faith. What they want is certainty. They want a kind of absolute clarity, which raises I think a really important question. Why would certainty be so important? To get to a, a provisional answer, it helps to understand that certainty is one of the keys to psychological health. We all crave it. We in fact need a fair sense of certainty to feel like we can just cope with the world. In fact, behavioral psychologists point out that human beings desire regularity, certainty and predictability. Think about it for a bit. Uh, we all invest a huge amount of time in just trying to make the world predictable. And we do this through plans, proposals, strategies, bureaucracies, governments, laws, and all sorts of other things. If you look at how infants and toddlers and small kids relate to the world, you'll see the beginnings of this. One, one of the first things to cause consternation and anxiety in small kids is the presence of way too much change. Maybe small changes uh, within a stable environment are, are okay, but, but this is only okay if familiarity remains the dominant modus operandi. But something as simple as disrupting a routine can produce a dramatic sense of unease and worry in a child. So I, I've seen this fairly uh, up close uh, recently. And, and this is true. I think even when we grow up, we, we live by means of our sense of certainty. To test the idea, imagine waking up to find yourself in the middle of a forest after having gone to bed the night before in your bedroom. Your first reaction to this sort of very startling change will not be, oh yeah, yeah, I expected this, this is perfectly normal. It's more likely to be 
a reaction of, of deep perplexity and anxiety. How did you get there? How is this possible? What's going on? This may be a silly and unlikely example, but it hints at, at the sort of stress that a sudden change might bring. People, are, of course, they claim they love adventure. Adventure is a wonderful thing, but adventure tends to be appreciated and enjoyed only within the, the parameters of, of safety and security. Think, think about even something like going to a theme park like Disneyland. It, it provides adventure within a context of predictability and safety. For instance, if you were go to, uh, go, to go on the Indiana Jones ride in Disneyland without a sense of safety and security, you'd be a complete nervous wreck by the end of the thing. It's it, because so many supposedly unpredictable things happen, but they're all so controlled and perfectly planned. For for uncertainty to be pleasant in any way, it has to be grounded in certainty. This gives us some clue into what religious fundamentalism really is. It is, by and large, a furious attempt to seek certainty in the face of what is obviously an overwhelming world of disorder, chaos, and unpredictability. But as I see it, it always sets up a false kind of certainty. Uh, it's a little like the certainty that a kid might have when, when he or she carries around a security blanket. The security blanket is the familiar thing. Think of Linus from the Peanuts comics. It gives the impression that all is well, that life is safe and predictable and stable and unworrying and unperplexing. But when we grow up, we realize it's just a blanket. Uh, this is a, kind of the the kind of idea that we find in Douglas Adams's wonderful work in in the his trilogy in five parts, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Which, if you haven't read that, you you should. It's it's really great. Uh, in in that series, uh, people are told to carry a towel, just a normal towel, it, as their most essential possession. And that they should do this, especially when they're tripping the light fantastic through a universe of mystery. The towel is just a towel, of course, but to people who travel through space, maybe it provides a sense of what home felt like. It's warm, it's familiar, it's definite, it's benign. But of course, that towel can be symbolic of the religious fundamentalists or secularists' whole system of dogmas and beliefs. The dogmas of the secularist or the fundamentalist may be somewhat true in their own way, like the hitchhiker's towel or the child's security blanket, but they do not cover enough to be sources of perfect security. Okay, So, so they still function as if they provide security, and the p possessor of knowledge may think that they provide security, but in reality, those dogmas are just the the appearance of certainty, the the semblance of it. They look so certain in their definite appearance that they are taken as ways to guarantee the certainty of everything else. And this is nonsense. It's just rubbish. Because just because you're certain, for instance, that a steering wheel in your car works is never proof that the brakes are also fine. It's They're different things. So the logic here is a kind of anti-logic. It's the anti-logic of universalizing the particular. A simple concrete instance or fact is taken to have a universal relevance. And this is done even when it hasn't got a universal re relevance. It's, it's taken as encompassing far more than it rationally or reasonably can. So for my dogmatic atheist friends, I see this anti-logic play out in the way that they will cling to scientific knowledge as if it holds all the answers to the meaning of life. 
And my dogmatic theist friends will do the same, even when it comes to, say, the way that they cling to dispensationalist interpretations of the book of Revelation. They cling to this as if this solves everything, and it, it really doesn't. Bearing in mind uh, what I've, I've said already about the connection between the religious fundamentalist and the liberal skeptic, the fact is that both cling to certainties that, when taken in context, are really not all that certain, or at least they're not guarantors of complete certainty. Richard Dawkins clings to science, but science, too, is filled with ambiguities and theories and inconsistencies and contestations, and it leaves most of the big metaphysical questions and existential questions completely untouched. It's very, science is, by nature, uh, tri uh, it tries to be descriptive, not prescriptive, uh, in terms of in terms of uh, existential or metaphysical questions, and anyway, so as I've suggested, religious fundamentalists also have their rigid dogmas, but those dogmas are ways to keep mystery at bay rather than to allow them to engage with mystery. This creates a kind of bizarre, twisted reversal of An Anselm's famous dictum, "Credo ut intelligam," I believe in order to understand. Now, for the fundamentalist, that's the religious fundamentalist, as well as the secularist fundamentalist, the fact is that they understand in order not to acknowledge their faith, what they believe. Oh, and here I'm equating faith and belief. But So that they, they understand, but it's a, a form of distancing themselves from faith. So they know in order to disavow their faith. In fact, you might even say that fundamentalism and skepticism are twins in a very particular sense. They are the offspring of a perverse, fetishist disavowal of faith. And that's a lot of uh, long words and terminology. So hopefully uh, what I say next will make this clearer. So to disavow something is the is in this way, uh, to, to use knowledge against faith is to let something, a fetish, stand in for what it represses. This is something that Tad DeLay uh, discusses in his really wonderful book on theology and psychoanalysis, which is called God is Unconscious. You should definitely have a read. It's, it's really, I think, uh, the best intro to, to the combo of theology and psychoanalysis. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to refer to a famous example of fetishist disavowal given by Zizek in his book, Enjoy Your Symptom. There, Zizek writes about a man who spoke about the terrible suffering that his wife had gone through before she died. But while the man was speaking, he was so calm and collected that he, and he seemed almost completely unaffected by the horror that he'd just witnessed his wife go through. He was totally realistic about his wife's suffering, which for, for the traumatized, that's a very unusual thing. There, um, he wasn't confounded like someone who had genu genuinely gone through such a, a terrible loss. But what was significant while he spoke about his wife's um, passing and, and the trauma that she'd suffered before was that he, w he was playing with a hamster that had been his wife's uh, pet. Only when the hamster died did the man go completely to pieces and he needed to be institutionalized to, to heal. So the key thing here is that when the fetish was unavailable to him, the hamster was unavailable to him, he was only then forced to confront the reality of his own grief and trauma and, and, um, and loss. 
In the case of disavowing faith by means of knowledge, knowledge can function in a way that the hamster did for the man. The knowledge is there as a fetish that represses the fact that faith is how all of us really live, whether we are religiously compelled or secularists, if that makes any sense. Our, our basic way of navigating the world is built on very simple, unprovable faith postures. So, for example, we trust that there is an ordered world outside our minds, even though we cannot prove this trust. It's just something we have to assume in order to function. We, we also trust that our minds have the ability to, and the capacity to know this order in the world, even though this is not something we can prove unequivocally. We trust, again, that, that language has the ability to convey what we mean, even when we know that Language also creates misunderstanding. We trust the chairs that we sit on without checking. And the order and regularity of traffic lights and cars and bureaucracies, this is faith in action. So faith is not necessarily just a, a concern with sort of believing the transcendent. It's actually how we function. But even this more basic faith is disavowed by knowledge. At least, not always, but, but often it is. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm presenting a kind of knowledge that acknowledges this faith rather than disavowing it. In the case of both the religious fundamentalist and the secularist, faith is something that needs to be repressed because it exposes a very simple fact that we really aren't in control of our lives, that we are, as Martin Heidegger said, we're thrown into the world, that, and this world is totally overwhelming. Knowledge provides us with the semblance of control. But in reality, we are really quite helpless in the face of reality. Knowledge can be the most potent of defense mechanisms. Knowledge defends us against the fact that in reality, we know really very little and trust far more than we can know. To know in this way is to refuse the possibility of faith in God, because God, as negative theology has taught us, is not a knowable thing. God escapes epistemology. Um, we cannot know God in the way that we know how to play chess or how to uh, name giraffes, oranges, dirigibles, and lunacy. We, we cannot know God as an object. If anything, God is the subject of faith, not the object of it. It is much more plausible to me um, to understand God, understand that we understand from God. Let me say that again. It's it's much more plausible to me that we understand from God than that we understand God herself. The trouble is that most religious fundamentalists treat God as if she is an object, as as if she can be owned the way that we own uh, things like rings and cars and cell phones and land. And this means that. God becomes something, some idea to defend and protect the way that we protect our stuff and ourselves. But God cannot be dealt with in the possessive. Even the idea of claiming to have a God is a misnomer. God cannot be had. If anything, God would be the one that has us. And I'm curious. I mean, I've just used the feminine pronoun to refer to God. And, and I know sometimes get people get really upset when I do that because... Uh, they feel, no, 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 but, but you know, the language about God is predominantly masculine. But I do this deliberately to indicate that as soon as someone does that, they're functioning according to a God who can be known as an object. God would not be gendered in the way that we are. And in fact, she is a misnomer too. And it, as the impersonal pro pronoun, would also be a misnomer. But the fact that we cannot gender God is shocking only to those who claim to know rather than to trust.
and I know what I've done here has probably uh, exposed a little bit of uh, how how trust and knowledge can can and are can be and are entangled. Anyway, so uh, before I get my words in a total knot, all of this is is really so crucial if we want to see um, how to get a handle on some of the more terrible consequences of religious fundamentalism today. Think of the terrorist attacks that have happened across the globe. Terrorists act the way they do precisely because they don't have faith in God or in morality, etc. They commit violence because they want to disavow the absence of their faith in God, as well as the presence of their faith in control and domination and power. These are these are different kinds of faith that are still operating. So you see, there are two things here. There is the absence of faith in the transcendent that is disavowed by knowledge. And then there is also a misplaced faith in human control and human destiny. That's also a disavowed kind of faith, but that's the one that's really functioning. So I can see why from all this, uh, I can see why the actor and comedian Chris O'Dowd has said that religion will eventually become as offensive and as unacceptable as racism. Because religion for O'Dowd is regarded as a system of knowing and certainty and immovability and if it is this, then it's no wonder that violence would be a symptom of it. But the thing I've tried to do here is point out that the problem stems most likely from religious belief, that's kind of religion as a system of knowing and sort of with kind of empirical certainty, rather than religious faith. Uh, that is from knowing what we can only speculate about or being certain about what we cannot be certain about. So. I think we really need to be very careful about how we relate to faith and and knowledge. Of course, I know that there is no such thing as a human being that doesn't have faith. And and this means that there is really no such thing as a human being who doesn't have doubts because faith and doubt are an inseparable married couple. They bicker from t- time to time, but they cannot ever file for divorce, no matter how much they try to. It's only the religious fundamentalist or secular cynic who thinks that they can be. That's why the religious fundamentalist always disavows doubt, because doubt points to faith again. And the result is hardly ever pretty when the religious fundamentalist does this. And it's it's never, at least to me, it's it's never compelling. Obviously, I know as well as any sane human being that terrorist attacks are very closely tied to religion. And and I understand that this is why so many people point to religion as the problem. And there is perhaps a kind of logic to accusing religion for irrationalism and abandoning reason. But when you look really closely, what you find is quite astonishing. The problems of fundamentalism are not bound to irrationalism and religious fidelity. The problems stem from reason itself, from knowledge and belief, and the way that these function to refuse to let the fundamentalist own up to the true locus of their faith. As I've said, knowledge hides faith, or at least it can do that, and and so it hides doubt as well. And to hide both of these is to conceal the fact that it is the dance between faith and doubt that makes us human and makes us ethical. Without faith and without doubt, there can be no chance for living well or striving toward the good. And, and I know that's quite a, a brash statement, but I really think this faith and doubt need to be coupled in order for ethics to function 
properly. In fact, to claim to know what cannot be known for certain is to set up the very conditions for bigotry and violence and self-deception that each of the great religions expressly speaks against. And that is where I will end. I've probably, I think, tried to cover way more ground than I should have here, but I hope that some of what I've said has been helpful for setting up a few coordinates according to which we might understand the phenomenon of religious fundamentalism and some, even some of secular humanism is part of this. And hopefully you'll, you'll also see to start, uh, you'll start to see why I side with the risky posture of faith, even a faith in the very real possibility of the transcendent I trust. And this is what compels me to want to know more. So that's it. Thanks so much for listening in. I, Hope you are looking after yourself. Uh, Take care, everyone.